the whole field of trauma therapy and somatic experiencing and somatic modalities is a fairly new area. And within the area um, of somatics, there is um, still a lot that, that is conflicting and or emergent. And a lot of things are quite subtle. Right? So, for instance, the shaking... The, the shaking out of the body when the body is allowed to do that is probably one of the most effective ways to release things, particularly if it's acute stuff, right? Or when you hit the trigger and you're really, really triggered and you allow your body to have that shaking. The same kind of shaking in a forced way can be a glossing over or pushing down the much more subtle feelings that are underneath, so it's not as easy as, oh, if you shake, then all will be well. Right? Um, it's much more becoming sensitive to what the body really needs and f always feeling one below the thing that's happening. Um, we, because we are humans and not animals, and no offense to animals because, you know, I feel very strongly about animals. But when you see, for instance, a gazelle uh, shake after sh it escaped a lion, they literally, they shake, they shake, they shake, they shake, and then there comes this last where they just shake it off and then they walk off and it's fine. And from what we can gather, because we don't know, we don't speak gazelle, right? The gazelle um, is done. Right? It's not sitting around uh, the watering hole the next day and, you know, going over the events again. Well, maybe, right? But it doesn't look like it. While in humans, of course, we are built uh, with processing powers that make it that even though we can release trauma from the body, we can always re-injure ourselves, so to speak, by hitting that groove again. And some people are expert groove hitters, or as Steve calls, calls it, scab pickers, right? where you're essentially, um, you can use the same principles that release the trauma to also re-traumatize. Right? So that, that's one thing to keep in mind. There's other ways to process trauma, one of which, in the most gentle way, is with some of what we did when it's properly guided, for trauma release, which we did not do here, right? But that kind of non-linear uh, movement for long periods of time in a somewhat trance-like state where the body gets to unfold and you can feel the layers of the sadness, the grief, um, the resentment, the mistrust, you know, like all of that and let it unwind. Uh, hour and a half, two hours. Uh, um, it's best done guided with somebody who knows what they're doing so that they can tell you when you start bypassing, skipping out, right? You can skip out by making sounds. You can skip out by crying, but you could also process by making sounds and process by crying, right? There's, there's a fine line and you need somebody who's really, really skilled to know which one you are doing. But those are ways to um, work with it. Of course, there's also body modalities that can take trauma patterns out of the patterning of the body. The Grimberg method is a specific modality where the people really, really, really have to um, study for four or five years, right? It's very, very rigorous. In, in the Grimberg method, what they're looking at is how, see how I can say this briefly, 
they look at how you create movement or intention patterns based on emotional things. And then they teach you how to identify the tension in those patterns and release it. So it's very specific. So that's another way that you can have somatic release. Um, you can, of course, also have cathartic release, which is what a lot of people think is the way to go. Uh, I personally, in all my years of being in that field, have never found that useful um, in the long run because you have a cathartic release and then there's no aftercare, so to speak, right? And then all these things creep back in or in the worst case scenario actually have hit a stronger groove in the pattern. So all deconstruction and no reconstruction. Yeah. And all deconstruction, no reconstruction is very dangerous. Yes, so about learning the tools and integrating and, and not kidding yourself and all of those kind of things. But that's a different conversation. The thing that you were asking for, is there other ways of releasing trauma than shaking? And the answer is yes, lots of different ones. That's, the, that's something that I've developed over the last almost 30 years. It's my personal practice over the last 30 years. Um, I'm teaching it now as well, so there is going, in, even in Australia, because we're starting teacher training next Tuesday, we'll, there will be qualified practitioners. Um, and it's a very specific, it's simple, but it's a very specific set of tools where you are not putting any force in the release. Because one of the most dangerous things is when somebody is uh, essentially trying to release you quicker than you are capable of releasing, which can... Uh, you know, result in everything from people having all these horrible careers all the time, uh, anytime they come anywhere near, you know, a, a trigger, or, um, you know, long-term damage from having kind of burst the pipe, essentially, you know, at one of those channels in the body. So nonlinear is specifically to make it non-force, where you start relying on the body's natural genius and you create the kind of circumstance in which the body can create homeostasis. Uh, there's a few other applications to it as well, but uh, that's, yeah, so that's, but it's a great question. And, uh, but, but when in doubt, right, let's say you have an acute moment where either old trauma gets triggered or uh, you have something actual happening, let see if you can relax your body enough so it can shake. Right? And one of the keys to that is that you relax the structure of your body, but you keep enough movement going so that you don't freeze. Right? Because freeze, of course, is the enemy of, of the release. No. That's always your best thing. And some arnica. <laughs> Thank you. thing about sensitivity, you could think of it as a journey from the gross to the subtle, a downward spiral from the gross to the subtle, from the loud sensations to the quiet sensations. And sometimes I use this example, if you're in a KISS concert, we're, you're in a KISS concert and you're talking to me, I can't hear you because it's so loud, it's a KISS concert, you know, it's too loud. Um, but if you were to talk to me at the same volume in a library, I would be able to hear you. In fact, maybe it'd be really actually quite loud. So your um, sensory context uh, is relevant to what you can feel. So, there's, so sometimes when you do things that sensitize you, really you're, in a sense, lowering the ambient noise level 
in your system to uncover sensations that are already going on but are covered over by the stronger sensations. So that's one way of looking at sensitivity. And the strategies for doing that, lowering the, th the noise level, you know, one of them is to respond to what you can feel. And that's tricky because if you want to be sensitive to what you can feel, there's no informed consent in a certain way. You don't know what you're going to feel. So if you're looking to feel good or feel... Um, or even if you're looking to feel, I don't know, pain, because you feel like you have some idea that you want to release that. So, like, pain feels good, you know. So if you have a paradigm in your mind that emotional, psychological anguish is a synonym for growth or freedom, then, of course, you're going to uh, divert, like somebody driving into a tree, constantly to deeper, more thorough, more comprehensive depths of pain and anguish. Because, of, after all, that's good, right? So it can be a little bit funny that way. But um, there's lots of things. So responding to what you did, for instance, on the Friday night, we did an exercise where we laid down the ground and we moved our head from left to right, only so far as we could move it um, until we felt something, like tension or pain or something like that. So you move a little bit to the left. Oh, you feel a little bit of tightness or tension or something. And then as soon as you feel it, you respond by moving to the right. And, and, and the same. It could be that you barely move at all, actually, because any time you even begin to think about moving, there's something there. So there's that sense, that's a sensitizing practice, because you're actually listening. Uh, rather than say, oh, I feel a bit of tension, let me overpower it with a feeling of stretch. Or let me anesthetize the uncomfortable feeling with an endorphin dump that, that disguises the damage I'm doing. You know, that's not sensitizing, actually. It may be a good or bad thing, but it's not sensitizing. It's overriding. So that's one example. There are other examples as well. For instance, the, uh, we did something yesterday morning where we're moving limbs in different directions in strange ways. And you feel, sometimes you feel stressed when you do that because it's a new neuromuscular pattern. So you have a stress response. Maybe you hold your breath. You might even feel anxiety. Or you frown, squeeze parts of your body, like bottom, for instance, whatever. What I suggested you did was go only so far as you could go whilst being relaxed. So that's, we're using then our body's uh, relative stress relaxation state. We're sensitive to that and we respond to it. As opposed to saying, come hell or high water, I'm going to do this exercise. And I don't care what else I have to, you know. That's not sensitizing. It's maybe something else, but it's not sensitizing. So responding essentially to what you can feel. And when you respond to what you can feel, you notice that rather than overpowering it with loud sensations, sometimes we overpower a feeling of tightness with a feeling of stretch. I feel tight today. Let me stretch. Oh, that's great. I feel so much better now. You know? You've just turned up the kids' concert in your legs. And your L5 will complain about that maybe five, ten years if you keep doing that. So um, it's essentially a sort of responsiveness, you could say. And when you do respond like that, it tends to lower the volume, the ambient noise level volume. Or you could also think of it as increasing the resolution or zooming in other metaphors you could use for that. But it's not an adding. It's um, an inquiring, uncovering, as opposed to an adding of something. Not to say you shouldn't add something, but it's just different. So then the thing to add to that, because you said different traditions and is it still valuable in today's day and age, it's probably more valuable than ever simply because the um, noise level is so very loud, 
right? Most people have a much higher um, input now than they've ever had. And so one of the many barriers to embodiment and with that sensitivity and feeling and responsiveness is, of course, overwhelm, right? And... Of course, different people have different strategies for how to deal with overwhelm. You know, some people meditate, some people drink, some people think tranquilizers, some people run. I mean, you know, there's different strategies, some healthier than others. But the thing to be said about sensitivity, sensitivity in itself isn't that useful. And what I mean by that is um, just feeling things is great, but then there's a few different layers to what you do with what you're feeling. The first one is, does it translate into anything? Right? So uh, you were saying in the different traditions, and I mean, I can only speak about the things I've done, right? Like, for instance, in, my, uh, in both my counseling practice in working with drug addicts and in uh, profiling, one of the things that's uh, very specific is that your sensitivity in itself isn't useful. It has to be paired with distinctions. So if I sit across from a client, and of course this also applies to workshop teaching, it, but workshop teaching, it applies to a whole room versus a client you sit across from one person. Noticing that they're flinching without knowing what that flinch is about is pretty useless. Right? So one realm of sensitivity is being aware of things that are going on. And the next thing then is that, that awareness filtering through into, into conscious awareness. And then that conscious awareness filtering through distinctions that you have learned that allow you to have insight on what's happening. And then the next set is, of course, having the skill to do something with what you done have uh, found to have occurred, right? Those are distinct layers of action, and, and, and that's what makes you skillful where if, you are, if you want to be skilled in that particular realm. Same, of course, applies to being a good lover. Just being able to have sex is, is what it is, right? Having sex and feeling the other person and feeling their body and feeling the reactions in their body and feeling reactions in your body translates to both having pleasure and to feeling the interaction, then, of course, you need to know what the things that you're feeling mean, and then ideally you have some skills that you apply to what you're feeling. And that's what hopefully makes you a good lover. So it's the same for a counselor as for a profiler as for a lover, so to speak, or a workshop teacher. So it's not enough to just be sensitive. Uh, it's the distinctions that make you capable Right. And distinctions can be learned. That's the interesting thing. Sensitivity you have to acquire through practices and through knowing what to do with your body and um, you know, relaxation and all kinds of things. But, but distinctions can be taught and can be acquired, either through what Steve is saying, exploration or inquiry, or through somebody actually teaching you specific things that you can then wrote, test, and refine for yourself. And so how that relates to all, all traditions, in all the traditions I had training in or trained myself in or am training other people in, it's the 
engagement with the body so that there's a f immediate feedback between what you're feeling and how you know and how it filters up into conscious awareness and then then come all the other sets so when we were talking the other night and i was saying when i was 19 like most people i know right if something happened and you have like a bit of a bad feeling but that's about as far as it gets right and then two or three days later you've relaxed enough around this and you go you know actually that was not okay what he said or something like that right so the quicker you can get from that uh, feeling to the conscious understanding of what that is, the better, because of course then you can actually do something about it and you're not victimized by your circumstances. And often when people get victimized by their circumstances, they in turn then victimize other people. Because, you know, three days later, if, I, if, you, say, if you do something to me, in my estimation, right, and I, I'm smiling at you. Let's say we're doing an exercise together and you touch me a certain way and I'm like, right? And you think it's all fine. And then three days later, I come back and I go, you violated me. And are you going to go, what the fuck? Why didn't you say something? And then this happens a lot, right? Then I would say, well, I didn't know. And then you go, well, how could you not have known? Right? And then there we go into that whole loop of what then happens and blah, blah, blah. It's a bad road to go down. And the only way out of that is that there's an immediate feedback of my body feels bad. This requires an action. And then, being, and then once again, having the skill to execute that action in a proper way and not in a three days later in relationship, this happens a lot, right? Somebody says something and three days later there's an explosion. And the other person can't even remember what it was about. Uh, so, The same, of course, applies when it comes to pleasure because if you can't feel the, uh, the signals in your body and if you're not aware of what's going on, you can't, you can't perceive pleasure in your system either. And then you have to have outside stimulus and quite intense outside stimulus when, as you get sensitized, you could actually use all that's already there and bring that to the surface. And then you need relatively little external stimulus to get to full sensation. There's lots and lots and lots of research done on the efficacy of psychedelics as a form of healing in both PTSD, acute trauma, uh, depression, addiction, right? So there's loads and loads and loads of research out there. And that research is very, very positive. Right? So uh, for many, many reasons, one of which is, of course, that the, the psychedelics make it so your habitual ways of dealing with things are not um, there. So just on a body level, it usually is very useful when, when those circuits of coping and suppressing get suppressed, <laughs> you know, those, those patterns get, get diverted. Then, of course, the nature of psychedelics is that it widens your view and your, widens your attitude towards something that could be considered spiritual or universal or global, or however you want to say it. So you get a big picture view, which is, of course, very useful because the very nature of trauma or, or you know, um, lineage stuff that we're doing here 
is a contraction into yourself and your own pain and suffering. And so the, the coming out of that into something where you see yourself as part of a whole and you see yourself in the, in the bigger picture scenario is very, very useful. And of course, then certain psychedelics and certain substances also make it so that you essentially have a heart opening, to say it like that, right? Where your heart is oriented so big and it's so wide that that flinch that is the contraction of the thing isn't there. So uh, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if this is happening in Australia, but in the US they now do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Not, you know, not something to be done lightly because unless a therapist is really, really good and there's very few really good therapists, um, you know, there's a lot of people who essentially became therapists because they're intrinsically fucked up. And often you find that the therapists, I find it often that the therapists and, and, and trauma teachers in a room, in a workshop room are the first ones to get triggered, which is concerning when you think of the fact that you're giving yourself over to that. So you would have to find somebody very, very, very good. But when you do, a, a good skilled facilitator can help you hit these areas when you can't close it down and process them through. I once saw in um, the early days of that research, which was 15 years ago or so, I once saw a session where somebody I knew at, at the rehab I ran do a, an LSD trip with a man who had had severe ritual uh, sexual abuse as a, as a child. And um, it was remarkable. I mean, uh, you know, really, really remarkable to see how the therapist who himself was an old uh, stoner, to say it nicely, or, or tripper, uh, who was in his 60s back then and had extensive... First hand experience, experience, but also was an incredibly good therapist, skilled in sexual trauma and and, uh, drug addiction, right? He he guided this man through, and the the man had such a profound experience, he was never the same after, in in a very, very positive way. And it completely took care of his drug addiction, interestingly enough, right? But I've also seen people essentially use drugs over and over and over kind of picking the same scab or, or creating the same groove because it's kind of pleasurable going there and, and, you know, packing all the stuff. And, you know, it's like having a little treasure chest. You open it, you look at everything, you touch everything, then, you know. And, and Well, I can't answer it from your personal... I can't give a personal recommendation, I'm afraid, because I don't have enough information. But I can explain what I meant, yeah. And when I said, and actually what I said was, it's all deconstruction and no reconstruction, is what I said. When I, that's all I said, actually. So simply, to put it a bit more abstractly, because outside of a case study scenario, it's difficult to be any more specific. I was simply suggesting that we, in a certain way, we are a bundle of conditioning, a bundle of habitual patterns. Not only psychological also perhaps somatic and biological gene, you know, and so on. Sort of a forward momentum of patterns with a certain life. And when that life ends, patterns um, disintegrate or unravel or change, you know. So 
the idea that to be totally free from conditioning, that if I could just get rid of the influence of my parents, or if I could just get rid of X or Z, to deconstruct oneself entirely into, uh, it's not possible, I don't think, um, in the way I'm defining conditioning anyway. It's possible to, uh, let's say, beat oneself up with release strategies that all they really do is just make you more prone to feel stronger release the next time you beat yourself up with that release strategy. It's just conditioning. Feel pain, scream, punch the pillow, whatever. Is your, whatever is the release strategy. <laughs> then you're, you are paving a pattern. You're paving a way. That's happening as you do that. So there's another side, which is reconstruction side. An awareness that everything you do is forming habit patterns and grooves, including catharsis. And there is suggestions and arguments and so on. That a great deal of catharsis is, is just simply doing that, making it worse, basically. I think you, you, you said it, but when, you talk, when we talk about something specific, let's say... Drug addiction is a good one. Drug addiction is a very good one, right? So one of the tricky things about drug addiction is, and why, I don't know if you know this, right, like a classic uh, treatment, meaning like AA-based, you know, 12-step-based treatment has a minus, two, minus plus 2% success rate which means 98% of all people who go to AA meetings fail. And 2% of people who don't go become alcoholics. No. <laughs> Is that what that means, minus pretty 2%? Um, much, so <laughs> people in nearby buildings start drinking. So, meaning... Um, the, the same is true for most rehabs, right? The rehabs are happy if they have 3 4% success rates. If, and that's in, in a two to four area, to a four year area, right? So it's very, very hard to deal with addiction. The reason it's very hard to deal with addiction is that it's really not about the substance. So, you know, you can detox from alcohol or from, from cocaine or something fairly effectively. And for instance, with opiates, which are considered the worst addiction, even from opiates, nowadays they have treatments where they put you under and they give you IVs and they scrub it out of your system. And you don't even have to feel the pain. But it's not, it, the substance is connected with a million little habits and patterns and triggers um, that make it so every moment of every day you get reminded of wanting to use this very thing that you're using. So you see your friend with whom you've used and you're right there. You've uh, uh, finished a phone call and that's when you would... This is the same even with smoking. We don't even have to go so... You know, smoking is equally as bad as heroin in that way, right? You, you, it, if not worse, because you don't usually do heroin after every meal, but you know most people smoke after every meal. So you have this constant triggering, 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 triggering. So when you reconstruct, right? So you could go, well, why did you do this in the first place? And often with addicts, not always, but often there's a sense of uh, you know lack of self worth, not good enough, never could live up, you know, like all this kind of stuff. So you would have to, you could deconstruct these things. You can have cathartic or uh, release things. You can release them from the body. But then you have to actually create different patterns and habits. It's a little bit what I said with speaking English as a second language, right? You even look and feel different to people when you speak, you speak Polish, right? Yeah. yeah. So 
if you would speak Polish right now, everybody would perceive you differently. It's the same with me when I start speaking Austrian. Everything in my behavior changes, and the way I move changes, and the way I look changes, because it's a different human, right? Kann ich, auf, kann ich Deutsch sprechen? Auf jeden Fall könnte ich einmal Deutsch sprechen. Spricht irgendjemand noch Deutsch hier, oder? Ja, yeah. yeah, genau. Uh, <laughs> right? So it's a totally different thing. And so that's what you have to do, right? So you could say, I have reconstructed myself in English, which I certainly have. Yes. Oh. And for instance, I've learned everything about teaching and how I teach and all of that in English. So when I go to Europe, we of course teach in English together, but I once went to Switzerland without him. And I had to teach in German, uh, but then there were some people who didn't speak German, which they didn't tell me. So I taught a whole workshop parallel in two languages with a Q&A where I had to translate every, every uh, question into the other language and then answer in two languages, right? By the end of the weekend, I was essentially psychotic, <laughs> right? I mean, I was so fucked up. I didn't know what was up and what was down because, it, you know, from that. But so that's, a, that's an example for reconstruction. You can completely reconstruct yourself and it is like learning another language. And for that, you would have to have proper skills. You have to train again, right? It doesn't just happen. So release is one thing, but then um, your reconstruction will require a lot of rep repetition. It's like learning how to walk again. Most therapeutic contexts will include an element of that. It's not just sifting through the shit. It's constructing some sort of positive outcomes also. Because the other, and I'm hesitant to speak on it because it's difficult to say. You can't necessarily say to somebody who needs to release, pick up your cross and bear it. You can't, it's not always appropriate to say that, but sometimes it is appropriate to say that. Sometimes, you know, you just have to get on with things, actually. But that's not very good advice to, uh, in other contexts, you see. So that's why it's very, very tricky to be any more specific. I'm going to answer a very clinical question, fairly unclinical in the way that I would answer it to people who used to come to me with anxiety, right? Uh, because you're absolutely right, it's not always possible to trace the origin of anxiety. Could be anything, like you said, could be an epigenetic trigger, could be an early childhood trigger, could be physical. Some people have chemical or electrical imbalances in their system. And electrical imbalances in the brain, by the way, is something that's just being studied, which is much more insidious than chemical imbalances in the brain. So there's all kinds of reasons why anxiety can happen. And uh, sometimes you can trace it, but even when somebody can trace it, it doesn't necessarily take care of the, the thing, right? So how I look at it and how I work with it in people is so imagine for a moment your body, this is theoretical, right, has a container, right? And every human being has a container. And some people's containers are little thimbles and some people's containers are buckets, right? And that container holds uh, or collects the stimulus from the outside. So all stimuli, this brings us back to the sensitivity, gather in one spot, so to speak. So you get up in the morning, the alarm clock goes, drop. Then you're a little bit late for work, drop, drop, drop. Now 
you are in, in traffic, you are actually having to be there, dip, 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 and so on and so on, right? So, so everything that is, a, that is a negative or stress stimulus, and mind you, the brain doesn't know the difference between actual danger and perceived danger. So everything that is actual or perceived danger is a drop in that cup. And so over time, throughout your day, the cup gets full, fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. At about 50%, you will start feeling stress responses. Your adrenals start firing and so on, like constantly firing, not just having a spike and dropping off. Your heart rate, blah, blah, blah. Then there's other elements, of course. You drink coffee, drip, 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 drip. Coffee fills this cup quite nicely, right? You use co cocaine, oh, you know, whatever. So there's, there's all kinds of things. So this includes dietary situational, mental, you know, environmental, all of that, entertainment, you know, news. being on Facebook, news, all of that, those are all stimuli. So at some point, the cup's full, and when the cup is full, you will have a panic attack. Right? That's just the way it goes. So the moment the cup starts spilling over, you have a panic attack. The panic attack eventually, of course, uh, empties the cup somewhat. But then, of course, you start getting afraid of the next panic attack, which fills the cup faster, and so on and so on. But um, the key there, then, is to simply look at how much of the stimuli can you reduce ongoingly? What can you do to empty the cup? And can you acquire a bigger cup? Those are your strategies around that. That's how I work with people around it. Right? So, so there's ways to create a bigger cup, um, meaning y you help somebody develop capacity, you relax them, you give them tools, you work with their nervous system, you reduce trauma responses, blah, 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 right? You give them, you, you give them more capacity. You reduce overstimulation. Uh, that includes everything from environmental impact to negative thinking. Uh, you can do things with supplements or whatever. And it's all kinds of ways. But what I look at is how do you prevent the cup from overflowing? And that's, to me personally, a much more, and I have to deal with that myself. Like, for instance, when we were on the same flight, it was fucking bumpy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so now, mind you, I can tell you this because you know what I'm talking about. I once fell into a clear air turbulence of over 2,000 feet. Right, so when there's the slightest bump, my whole body goes into massive, I'm going to die. So six or eight hours or whatever, how much bumpiness we had, to my body is essentially, you know, it's, it's almost unbearable. So it will take days to empty my cup from that. Right? So I will have to do all kinds of things. And I went to the chiropractor, had a massage. I have to, you know, we sat and meditated. I whine. That's a good one for me. <laughs> right? Whining empties my cup quite nicely. Right? So, but, but that's just a matter of thing. But for instance, if I don't do that, and now we're going to Byron tomorrow, and we're going up there, and there's even the slightest bit of bump, I have such an adrenaline spike. It will take me the rest of the day to recover from that rush. Right? So uh, that's neither here nor there. Could I take tranquilizers? Probably, right? But that's, that doesn't help the situation. You just work with the cup. Right? And 
mostly I can work with the cup and I know that if I have to go fly, there's certain other stimuli that I will avoid on the way there, afterwards, food, drink, you know. So, so, so you have much more agency over the cup when you know that you're essentially only metering the filling or emptying and not deal with the totality of your existence being obliterated by this strange thing. And then um, in that kind of scenario, you can become quite empowered which doesn't necessarily mean the anxiety goes away, but you're empowered in the management of the dripping. And certain things you can do something about and certain things you can't do something about it. Nobody leaks energy just to experience the negative effect of having leaked energy. There's a positive payoff somehow Mm -hmm. in in there, right? This is why it's hard. Uh, And it's also unconscious and automatic and maybe even foundational, so it's tricky. But... Yeah, sensitizing will certainly help. Also, noticing the consequences of situations when you feel low, tired, irritable after something. But that helps somewhat to see the consequences of it. See the areas where there's um, uh, also areas in which it seems to be getting worse. More work is required. More complexity is being added, say, in relationships or something like that, you know. You can also sensitize to the on-ramp, which is the hunger, the yearning, to do whatever it is, or uh, the pre-leak conditions. You can acquire a sensitivity to those. For instance, classic, one of the classic, classic ways is when you're in meditation. You know, it's a way. If you sit in meditation and you want to scratch your nose, or get up. And if you don't scratch your nose, what can happen is, so scratching the nose is the tip of the iceberg. I, I have an itchy nose, you know, I want to scratch my nose. But then underneath... This is sort of uh, what can happen if you don't scratch your nose, right? Okay, maybe it goes away. But if you keep not scratching your nose, you start to feel like this temper tantrum, fear, panic <laughs> thing coming out of there. You know, why? It's not, your nose isn't going to fall off, you know? It's because the, there are these unconscious drivers, you know, to action, to distraction and so on. So you can start to ta- tap into the, some people, my meditation teacher calls it the Shinzen, the primal field strata, the things that shuffle us along, towards and away from. You know, these sorts of, they'd say, craving and aversion, whatever, you know. So you can sensitize and um, um, to somewhat the uh, pre-leak conditions. You can feel those. And you can see it happening. And you can see the consequences of it. Those are possibilities, you know. But it's tricky and you you have to sort of triangulate it over time with a continual open inquiry. In other words, you can't be too hasty to conclude your findings. Mm-hmm. There has to be some degree of ongoing calibration. Otherwise, you just congeal around some other new position, which later will have to be reset and constantly. You know? so, yeah. But it's very confusing. And then you have to be willing to put up with a sort of a question mark, ongoing question mark. But if you can put up with an ongoing question mark, then you're already like... You know, it's like, that's like Zen Roshi level right there, you know. That's not a therapeutic answer, but maybe you should give a therapeutic answer. Well, I mean, I think you covered it really well. There's another way that people use leakiness, right, or, or say leakiness, and that's usually in the context of tantra workshops, right, where you, where you, hear, you hear people that's go, oh, man, this guy's leaky, right, or oh, he's, you know, he's leaking energy. 
That's that's a different way of looking at it, right? I think what Steve says here is uh, is really um, the the way to look at maximizing your energy, right? So where you don't lose energy randomly in places that you no longer have to perform properly, right? Because one of the actual issues with the human brain versus a computer is you can't upgrade RAM. You have a maximum output on the cortex of the brain, which is 444 megahertz per second, I think is what it is, if I remember this correctly from way back when. It sounds like a lot until you put your whole iTunes collection on there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then you need to digest and so on and so on, right? So you you have a limited energy output and uh, if you have areas where stuff gets lost, right, then you don't have enough. That's one way, and that's actually the appropriate way to look at uh, energy loss, right? But often it's also used as, oh, man, you're leaky, right? Oh, the, the sky is really leaky. And that leaky is actually more a, a taking. It's a feeding on because there's energy missing. So, that, so you sometimes hear that where you, and you probably have experienced this, this goes men and women alike, where people who have a loss of energy or a loss of life force in a certain way or loss of sexual energy feed on other people's energy to get their, 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 you know, their fill, so to speak. And that's often also considered leaky, of course, right? And so energy continence, meaning the maintaining of your own energy, and that means both that you don't lose it. So, for instance, how, how in that context you would lose energy is that you have unexpressed or unexamined hungers around women, let's say, or sex. So you don't allow yourself to feel that, but then you see women and then you find some weird way to get a little bit of a snack, right? It's so, a, what do you call it? An ulterior motive. Yeah. You can leverage Not you the personally, but one, right? So, you can leverage the rules of the, of the container to get, you know. Something. A bit of a hit, right? A snack. So, on one end, you would identify the leak and plug it by examining your maybe unexamined or, or undeveloped areas. And then on the other end, you would also plug the container so that other people can't you know, kind of mainline your energy, which can happen quite easily. And that's a boundary function. And that's a boundary function, yeah, where you just learn continents. Very, very hard, though, because once again, you know, to be taken from, you have to, in some way, there's a, there's a return. There's some sort of a uh, Faustian bargain going on, like a bargain with the devil kind of thing mm-hmm. going on, where it's, it feels good in a way. You know, and to, so sometimes a good way to close up a leak is to get a really, really solid, perhaps even sort of totally life-destroying dose of an energy vampire, you know, <laughs> until you really get it in your head or really get it in your body that even though he, she gives me this, this, you know, it's just not worth the price. But it's very, very tricky because it's, it's difficult to get out of that orbit, you know, because it is energy vampires, that, you know, they tend to be very, something yeah. compelling about them. You know, and then it could be the compelling things that give you some great thing. It could be the compelling thing is that you're too polite to tell them to fuck off. You know, and some people aren't socialized that way. Yeah, and they come in more and more and more, and you're little polite, 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 until they're like right in your face you know, with a fang. You know. <laughs> and of course, this does, this loops back into what we've been doing here. In in this set of exercises, right? You essentially our 
our ancestry and our lineage predisposes us and our parents predispose us to these things because often our parents unwittingly live through us or need us to supply certain things and you know because they that's how they've been taken from and there's a you know lack of boundaries there's a lack of if you're like let's say raised by a single mother who uh, you know every time something goes wrong she melts down and now you need to as a five-year-old right somehow provide energy or love to that to that mess you your boundary function gets essentially inhibited or destroyed by the need to be there for your mother so that she in return comes down and loves you and takes care of you because otherwise you're not safe, right? This is just one. So you're essentially programmed to have certain leaks, uh, programmed to have certain behaviors towards women or men, you know, it doesn't matter, that then later on in life make it so that you're susceptible to certain leakings and taps, right? And so. Mm. And the last sentence to say on, the, on it really would be that energy exchange in itself isn't, isn't an issue. So some people become very, very stingy, which is boundary functions like gates. They can open and close. Mm -hmm. It's not that they close and that's it. So there's that <laughs> choice to exchange and share your uh, treasure, mm -hmm. but rather than getting stolen. You know? So it's not about shutting down either. Well, that's one of his specialties there is, uh, what do you call it, minimum muscular activation? Minimum necessary. Muscular, muscular activation. Yeah. Like when he teaches men's uh, weekends or men's you know, intensives, a lot of that is. Uh, and with the women, we do it slightly different. We're looking at push, right? So which is the same thing. It's just a slightly different way of that where you use a lot of force to, to on stuff that actually doesn't need that much force. And hence, you don't have... Yeah, so... The thing, the, the thing to know is, as Steve said, there's many, many ways to slice it. But when we talk about the Kashmiri traditions, there's two fundamental lines, right? So supposedly when Lakshman Ju died, who was the... the, the the last of the known scholars of the Kashmiri scholarly tradition, he was the last one. Now, somebody like Christopher Wallace, who is a really good scholar and really clean and really, I've read some of his things, not much, um, is following that particular lineage. And that lineage is a scholarly lineage um, of thinkers and uh, writers and men who are making sense of things, right? It's very valuable. There's another man in, 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 uh, in the U.S. called uh, Professor Douglas Brooks, Dr. Douglas Brooks. Same thing. They know each other. They're very aligned. It's super technical. They have all the proper pronunciation. You know, they write about this and that and the shaktis and, the, you know, the, the, all the different ways you can do it. And that's very, very valuable. And it's clean. So that's one way that you can go. Then there is the traditions that are passed down just from woman to woman, like the one that I was educated in, which is not scholarly at all. And in those traditions, there's different uh, 
how shall I say this, different orientations based on the tradition and on the people in the tradition. And what I mean by that is, for instance, in my lineage, I can just talk about my lineage. In my lineage, it is considered that each woman who holds the lineage has to bring the lineage and the teachings of the lineage forth through her particular gift. So, for instance, the woman two up from me was a choir master in an Indian uh, boarding school. And so her teaching all came through music and through singing and through educating the voice and making the body open through the voice. So she, she learned from her teacher, though, who was a householder with, you know, who didn't work at all, who had a certain kind of set of circumstances that was very devotional, that she learned and ate and drank and, and whatever she um, could metabolize, she then gave to the next woman who then brought it through her set of skills. And then my teacher uh, had a very specific set of skills in which she trained me. Now, I'm a very dr drastically different person than my teacher, so I'm bringing it forth through the way I teach. I already have a, a, you know, an established platform, so to speak, that I had before I became the lineage holder. So I'm pressing that knowledge through the way I'm doing it. Right. So that's a very, very different way of teaching those Kashmiri traditions. Now, there is um, aspects to it that always stay the same, one of which is devotional activity, the emptying out of yourself. In my case, it was sweeping and chai making. Initially. Initially. In the case of my teacher, she did scales up and down, up and down, up and down. She's a very, very accomplished, beautiful classical Indian singer she was. Right, because that's how her teacher taught her. So, but it's chop wood, carry water, essentially, right? And then emptying out and uh, the movement from that emptiness. And with that then comes uh, an um, engagement into classical, that's the Kashmiri classical thing, deity yoga, right? Uh, where you essentially merge with the deity, you empty out your persona, and all of that, and take on the attributes of the deity, you become the deity, which gives you insight into the arbitrary nature of reality, right? And all of those kind of things. And then in that, when you know how to do that, you then learn how to polarize with a male deity. And the male deity is in the form of a male practitioner who has had the same kind of different training, completely different training, same kind of ability to become empty, fill himself with God, so to speak, become Shiva to the Shakti, and then you do sexual practice as empty of yourself, you know. And then there's such thing as the Maituna ritual and things of that nature where you're essentially representing God and goddess in the sexual union for a specific... Um, but that's far down the line. There's no sexual practices for, I didn't do any sexual practices for the first five or six years at all. And then the sexual practices were self-practice, lots and lots of investigating your own body, learning how energy moves through the body. So there weren't overtly sexual practices. Nobody was diddling me in any which way or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> so... In, in all the traditions that I know of in the Kashmiri line, there is sexual practice, but not in the sense of 
what's done in mainstream Tantra, right, often. And then the other thing to consider is, of course, that in the classic sense of, of the Kashmiri lineages, there's no healing taken into account, right? And that's really, really, really important. They, they only take people to those places who are essentially cleansed enough, hence some of the things we offered you this weekend, which come out of my explorations through my lineage in other ways, where you deal with your shit before you ever get with another human being sexually, and all of those things. So th that, that's the best I can tell you. So I personally uh, respect the scholarly tradition very fully. I learned enough of it that I can make sense and I can deal with the, you know, the Sri Vidyas and all of that kind of stuff. But it's not important to me because it's a felt, lived, transmitted, metabolized tradition where you can... Um, learn something without any of the ritual of your forefather, so to speak, but get the gist of it and then live that into your, into your life. Right? That's how I look at it. It's a liberating of the lineage from its cultural context. That's what a living lineage is. It, it evolves. Rather than sort of st studying, um, which is a very valid thing, something that's already happened, right? like Beethoven. It's done. But music's still going on. So you can be kind of like a Beethoven cover musician. You know? Like a wedding singer. Like a tantric wedding singer. You know? This is how they used to do it, apparently. You know, we think. And then they discover some other text. They go, oh, no, that's totally wrong. That's something that they took from Swedish gymnastics. It's like, oh, my God. Last 30 years of my life's been a lie, you know. I don't have to be a vegetarian and you know, yeah. hold my breath every day and whatever it is. You know. But one of the things that I'm very, very big on personally and have for many, many, many years, and that's my primary, one of my primary practices is there is a text, right? You know the text, right? The, the Bhairava Tantra, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, right? The, the, the root text is a very simple set of instructions. And if you want to know about Kashmiri tantric practice, all you need to do is read that text. And thankfully, there is a very, very beautiful new translation by a man named Lauren Roche. Um, it's called the Radiant Sutras. He's, um, he's actually teaching in Australia right now. We're trying. He's a friend of ours. He's a friend of ours. Um, spend. Everything you ever need to know is in those Radiant Sutras. And then you can see in those Radiant Sutras, they suggest practice, right? Each of the, there's the banter verses and then there's the Yukti verses and then the Yukti verses. Each of those verses is a set of instructions. And you could spend your whole life going from one of those to the next, to the next, to the next. And they suggest, of course, erotic friction, right? The the play between the masculine and feminine doesn't necessarily need to be intercourse, but it certainly includes intercourse. But it includes intercourse from an empty, kind of scrubbed, you know, scrubbed clean kind of a place of devotion. It has nothing to do with getting off uh, in any which way, right? And um, things like the proper position of the cock to the clit to the G-spot is not mentioned in there because that's purely experiential 
on your disposition in the moment. With the, and you can learn endless skills, but it's not necessary, really, uh, as long as the devotional nature of your being opens into that, you know, into that particular flow. And it's very beautiful, grace-filled instruction, really. And Lauren really did an amazing job because what Lauren did, this is applied tantric metabolizing, right? Lauren worked, he's a, he's a professor and he's worked with it for 26 years now total. And for 24 years, he would get up first thing in the morning and he would read the text and he would translate it. One verse at a time, he would translate it and he'd make, because of course, you know, in, in, in those translations, they're completely poetic. And he'd make like six, seven, eight, nine of those translations. And then he'd come out and then he, his wife would get all her girlfriends together and they, and he would read them and they would dance to it and they would feel what was the translation that was most conducive to the opening of their body to the text. And that's the one he would pick. And it took him 24 fucking years to get, to get this book right. Yes. So, yes. Well, but that's, that's, that's Kashmiri Tantra in its essence. Right? It's a deeply embodied devotional opening that, that's available to anyone. And you don't need to be a scholar and you don't need to be particularly trained. It's useful to have skills, but that's not really what it's about. One must say, aside from power, that's a different thing. The discipline, of course, is a very good thing. My teacher was, had to really instill a lot of discipline in me, but not for the sake of having one over on me. And certainly I, had, I never had to qualify myself through certain acts to be worthy of the next thing, right? Uh, on the contrary, my teacher never told me what to do. If I couldn't figure out myself, I was just stop, stuck in some developmental uh, eddy, you know, somewhere there on the sidelines till I myself got out. And only then would the next thing come forth. And I once, I don't know, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I wasn't even allowed to go there till I had figured some shit out where I had to learn how to discipline myself. Nobody disciplined me because she wasn't on a power trip. And given the fact that context is king, I think your 101 different activities can be the vehicle of your inquiry. Take, uh, like Bruce Lee said, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is essentially your own. That's heresy to, to lineage, you know. Yes. But remember, lineage without liberation, uh, here we go back. <laughs> is just a dead uh, prison. You have to bear in mind, good uh, education furnishes you with the ability to hold divergent views simultaneously, right? So the search for the purest one true God of Kashmiri Shaivism, something like this, you know, you're never going to get out of that rat trap. That's the thing that got you into trouble in the first place. One can get into trouble attempting to find the ultimate truth of a certain tradition of the true lineage of the real guy and the real thing and so on, right? So I'm suggesting reading far and wide if you want to go the scholarly route. And what you'll find, frustratingly enough, is that there's very little consensus. But that's, that's the nature of it. That's why, as Elvis was uh, we were talk discussing, this question mark. Mm -hmm. The scholarly approach is not about answers. It's about questions asking better and better and better, better questions, you know, having divergent views simultaneously and understanding that, you know, this is and this and so on and so forth. That's scholarship, you know. And if you have that kind of a bend, 
then the sorts of question you're asking, like what's the one true and so on and so forth, you'll be able to answer that very nuance. Well, it's interesting because from this perspective, from that perspective, you know, this line of evidence, this set of, uh, uh, you know, discoveries and so on, and you have this sort of an idea. You know, that's always a good route to go. But if you want the experiential route, you need to look no further than your own experience. You don't need a guru for that. So take your pick.